Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation and a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. We bring you community discourse about the amazing organizations and people who come together to make Edmonton strong. Every month, we share stories from the spaces where endowments and communities intersect. I'm Elizabeth Bonking. And I'm Andrew Paul. This episode, we feature Daryl Davis. Daryl is an accomplished musician who has traveled all over playing blues, rock and roll, country and jazz. But that's not what we're here to talk about. Instead, we're going to talk to Daryl about the other thing he's become known for. You see, Daryl has been traveling all over to meet and sometimes befriend Ku Klux Klan members. He set out to discover how anyone could hate him without knowing him, just because of the color of his skin. Daryl sat down with Lisa Pruden to tell us about his experiences with Klan members and about what friendship means to him. Daryl, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So you'll be coming to Edmonton on October 17th. You're coming for the Shift Lab Speaker Series, and the series is all about how to have difficult conversations about race, which is something you've gained quite a bit of experience in. Yes, I have gained quite a bit of experience, but you know what? It really started when I was a child because my parents were a U.S. Foreign Service. So I spent a lot of time overseas uh, as a kid. You know, with my dad, I was an American embassy brat, so I was always exposed to many different cultures and traditions. And, uh, you know, for me, it was just, it was just the norm because that's all I knew as a child. So I would see my parents interacting with people who may not share the same traditions and cultures as I do. And I would assume, you know, perhaps by, you know, osmosis or whatever, that diplomacy, I, I got a hold of it somehow. And I've never really viewed, you know, people who have different opinions uh, than myself as being any any what difficult, you know, just different. But they're still human beings at the end of the day, and I treat them the same way I want to be treated. Yeah, I, I kind of wanted to start on that idea of friendship. What does a good friendship look like to you? A good friendship to me looks like someone, you know, who will have my back and I will have their back in times of need. You know, they will be there, but they will also be honest, not necessarily have to agree with me if they truly don't believe in what I'm doing, you know, I would like somebody, I would like a friend to be objective. Like, for example, you know, I'm, I'm a little overweight. So somebody who hasn't seen me in 20 years, let's say, says, oh, hey, Daryl, how you doing? You know, you, you know, oh, man, you know, you look great. No, I don't look great <laughs> because you knew what I used to look like, and you're just saying that to appease me. That's not a true friend. But someone says, hey, you know, hey, you know, you, you need to shed a few pounds there. That's a true friend because they care about your health. So someone who's, who's okay to challenge you where you might need to be challenged. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, that, that is truly having your back, wanting the best, you know, the best for you and seeing things objectively where you may not be able to see them because you're in the midst. And, you know, and it's, not, it's not meant to be critical or destructive, but it's, it's, it's meant for your benefit. With the work that you do, in going to speak to clan members, it seems like some of your critics frame you sometimes as guilty by association, so that because you're befriending clan members and growing these relationships, then you must agree or encourage their philosophy. What does it feel like when people bring that to you? You know, uh, yes, that does happen. 
and is very sad, but it shows a, a limited amount of knowledge on somebody else's part. Uh, for example, I get it. If uh, someone sees a picture of me on the Internet or wherever, shaking hands with someone in a robe and hood, uh, here, here I am, a black guy, and here, here's this person is a clan, a clan member or clan leader, and we all know the history of the clan. So why am I shaking hands with them after all the atrocities that have been committed by people just like him who wore, who wore uh, robes and hoods just like that? There are people who will form an immediate opinion. Oh, he must be a sellout. He must be a race trader. He's an Uncle Tom. He's, he's an Oreo, whatever. And I've heard all those terms. I get that. And if I saw the same picture of someone, I might have a visceral reaction. But I and some others will look at the story behind the picture and say, you know, what's going on here? You know, you know let me try to find out. Oh, oh, okay, I get it now. I, I see where he's coming from. And then there are others who don't go beyond the picture. So that to me is very sad. You know, if I see something that doesn't quite seem right to me, I want to investigate and find out what the story is rather than make up my own uh, narrative. That's kind of how you got started on this adventure, isn't it? Uh, yeah, the, the, the main question uh, that I formed in my mind at the age of 10 after a racist experience you know, that has stayed with me all my life was how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And you know, who better to ask? than someone who would join an organization that has over uh, 100, almost 150 years history of hating people who do not look like them and who do not believe as they believe. If you have access to someone like that, that's your best resource. There's a documentary on Netflix about the work you do called Accidental Courtesy. Yes. And in watching this, I noticed that when you're speaking to anyone about racial justice, you ask a lot of questions and then you listen. So what is the value of listening to someone who is promoting hate or who believes that they hate you? The value is you have to understand where they're coming from and how they got to that place in their lives. That is the only way you can attempt to address or provide a solution uh, to that problem, you know, if you know where they are. Because a Klansman or a black person or, or anybody uh, just, you know, a, a, a non-clan white person. We all are not stamped out of standard cookie cutters. We come from all different walks of life. We have different traumas in our lives. We have different belief systems, etc. So we have to know why that person is in, is in that space, why they're in that place in their lives. And then we can figure out how to address it. Just like, uh, you know, if someone has a problem with a certain behavior, it Maybe it's due to some trauma they had as a child, sex abuse, physical abuse, things like that. When they go and see the, the psychotherapist or the psychologist, uh, what's the first thing they do? They go back to their childhood to figure out how they arrived at their present state of being. So it's similar to that. You, know, you have to know where a person came from and, and how they got to that point where they don't like you without even knowing you. They don't like you simply because you're Jewish, simply because you're gay, simply because you're black. They, ha they know nothing else about you. It doesn't matter you know, if you have a PhD, it doesn't matter if you have a million dollars, it doesn't matter if you've been around the world. All they know is you, know, you, you have black skin, or you are a Muslim, or you are a Jew, or you're a homosexual, and therefore you are inferior. How does somebody arrive at that place without even the benefit of knowing that person that they hate.
Have you found an answer to that question? Uh, yes. <laughs> the answer to that question is there is no answer. They can't explain it. Now, initially, they give me the answer, uh, well, because uh, you have a smaller brain than white people. We know that blacks have smaller brains than white people. Black people are prone to crime. Black people try to bilk the government welfare system because they're too lazy to work. I have heard every stereotype you can imagine. That's the initial reason why they don't like me. And if I mix with their race, I'm going to produce uh, kids you know, that, that are going to be uh, not right. They're not going to have the full benefit of being white. So that's their initial reason. After coming to know me, when they renounce that ideology, then they, the, uh, the answer is different. Well, Daryl, you know, I'm really sorry. You know, I, I really don't have any reason to hate you. You know, I don't know why I did. I, I was confused. Uh, you know, I've, I've learned a lot, et cetera, and they rescind that hate. So the, so the answer is, ultimately, there is no answer. Because you cannot justify racism. There is no rationale behind it. That's interesting. And it sounds like it's a personal journey for each person you've spoken with and engaged with. Well, it's a personal journey for me, but it's also a journey for all of us because I want to share that journey with people. Uh, I have an advantage that many Americans of any color don't have. It does not make me a better person than anybody by any means, but it makes me a more, I would say, worldly or well-rounded, well-traveled individual. Between traveling with my parents as a child in the U.S. Foreign Service, combined to my travels now as an adult, uh, as a professional musician, I have been in 56 different countries around the world on six continents. So I have literally been exposed to a multitude of religions, cultures, ethnicities, traditions, etc. And all of that has helped shape who I've become. And one of my very favorite quotes of all time is by the American author Mark Twain. It's called The Travel Quote. And Mark Twain said, Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. And that is so true. And I see many people, not everybody, but I see many people who never even leave their hometown or don't venture out of their state uh, to experience different things. And so, therefore, their perspective is their reality. And you know the old cliche, uh, if you can't take Muhammad to the mountain, then bring the mountain to Muhammad. So in some small way, perhaps I can bring some of these traditions and cultures and knowledge that I have acquired you know, over the 60 years of my life to them vicariously and let them see some things that they would otherwise not see and that other people are not willing to step forward and, uh, and share with them because they don't know how. So that, I think that has been the key to my success in dealing with many of these people. Especially with that last part, that willingness to step forward, to engage. From the outside looking in, it seems like there could be kind of an element of danger to, to approaching members of a hate group. Oh, of course there is. Yeah. And, and I've been in, in situations, you know, that have been extremely dangerous where, you know, it broke out into physical violence. Um, fortunately, those have been few and far between. But you understand something. You know, you're dealing with someone who simply does not like you. 
they hate you for no other reason than your religion or the color of your skin. Now, not every Klan person is like that, but there are plenty who are. And, and I've met some of those people as well. And you, know, you, don't, you don't have a chance before they want to attack you. And that's what you, know, that's what you have to deal with. Um, I've even met people who've gone and bombed churches. I know people who've committed murder, all behind religion and race. You know, these people are dangerous, absolutely. But these are the kind of people, you know, that you want to get to and try to find out what is it, what triggers that, you know, that, that, that line of thinking, and how can it be taken off that course and, and set on a proper track. How do you steel yourself or protect yourself when you're navigating situations where you are maybe in danger, either physically or even personally or emotionally? Well, what you do is you study up, learn as much as you can about the ideology of the other side. And this would go for anything. You know, it it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, solely about race. It could be, you know, about, let's say, abortion. You know, you might be on one side, somebody's on the other side. Learn what the other side's position is and try to put yourself in those shoes. Learn as much about it as you can, because even if they hate you uh, because of your position, they will respect you because of your knowledge. Most of them will. So that is how, you know, that, that's, that's my biggest weapon, is my knowledge of how they feel. And if given a chance to speak before I'm attacked, that usually uh, works. When you're having these conversations that are difficult and where you may be at risk, um, and, and as the relationship grows, how do you recognize when this difficult conversation is becoming a friendship? Um, that's a good question. You know, initially, as I said, you know, nobody is stamped from a standard cookie cutter. They come from all different walks of life, etc. But they do have one thing in common when I have uh, dealt with them and interviewing them and things like that. Uh, initially, none of them will reciprocate questions back to me. Like, you might say to me, Daryl, you know, what do you think of President Trump's policy on such and such? And I'll tell you what I think, and then I might say, well, what do you think, Lisa? You know, I'll reciprocate it back to you. They don't do that, you know, initially, because I have nothing to offer them. Uh, I'm inferior, you know, you, you must you know, realize, because they think I'm inferior, they're not going to ask me for any information, because nothing I have to say is of, uh, is of any value to them. So they will simply answer my questions, uh, unless it, you know, incriminates them or something like that. You know, they'll say, I don't want to talk about that or whatever. But uh, they'll, they'll give me their answers and how they feel. But, they, but they're not interested in how I feel. And over time, eventually, some of the, you know, someone's going to say, well, I think such and such. What do you think? It's at that point I realize, whoa, wait a minute, hold on. You know, now, all of a sudden, I've got my foot in the door. I have some modicum of value. They really want to know what I think. And then I share that with them. And then they have to struggle with it, especially if, if I have presented a fact and not an opinion. And they struggle with it for a while. It might be um, a few weeks. It might be a month. It might be a year. But, you know, if you cause them to struggle, they have to come to a point where, do I believe the truth and change my ways, or do I continue believing a lie and make a fool of myself? So eventually they all begin reciprocating uh, questions. When, when, they, when they trust you and feel that you might have some information that they don't have and they want it.
Mm -hmm. I I think it's interesting. Like I'm pulling out of out of it that a, a lot of this work and and the reciprocation that you receive it it seems to come from a general sense of curiosity or genuine curiosity. Curiosity on both of our parts, yes. And something very very uh, true that I've learned is this: when you are actively learning about someone else, at the same time you may not realize it but you're passively teaching them about yourself. So you think you're gleaning all this information from the person that you're interviewing. At the same time, they're gleaning information from you. So it's always important to be straightforward, be completely honest, because if you're not, that will come out. And you know, the, the most important thing that you can do in any situation is sell your credibility. You must be credible, because things don't happen overnight. You know, you want a repeat interview. You want a repeat return to sit down and talk with them. I, like I say, you know, you're not going to change anybody's mind, you know, today or tomorrow, you know, in your first uh, meeting with them. Um, I mean, it can happen, but it, it happens very rarely. It's usually over time. Um, and and how, how do you get that second meeting? You must be credible. If for some reason or another they perceive you not to be credible that first time, they will not come back. It's sort of like, you know, if you go to buy... A, a used car at a used car dealership, and, and you find the uh, the salesperson, you know, feeding you a whole line of of something you know that you don't believe, and you're and you're questioning his credibility. You know, you'll say, you know, I'll I'll, I'll think about it. Uh, I'm gonna go home. I'm not, I'm not gonna buy the car today. I'll think about it and get back to you. And of course, you know, you never get back to him. And uh, he calls you and calls you, and you keep putting him off because you don't want to go back. You think, you know, this guy is trying to uh, take advantage of you or something. But if you find this guy to be honest and uh, and credible, yes, you will come back, and you may you may buy his car. It all depends upon that person's credibility. And it's the same thing with uh, you know when you're dealing with with somebody and you're trying to get to know them. Uh, you know they belong to to a, a society that is considered secret and sacred to them, and for them to let you in, you know even on the on the periphery you must present yourself as being somebody who's credible. Uh, otherwise, they will not come back for a second meeting. So I've managed to get you know meeting after meeting after meeting. And that's when they began asking me, what do you think? And then eventually they began thinking about what I think, and they struggle with it. And some of them end up thinking, oh, you know what? I need to renounce this. I'm, I'm, I'm out of this. Others, you know, stay in. And uh, you know, I'm not so naive as to think that everybody's gonna change. Of course, you know, there'll be those who will go to their grave being hateful, violent, and racist. Uh, you don't give up on them. You know, you keep working with them, but you know that there are others who can and will change given the time and information that they need to make those uh, crucial decisions in their lives. I, I like that. I think I'm, I'm having a, a little moment to take away of that it's worth the effort. Absolutely. And, you know, let me, let me make clear, I, I did not convert anybody. You know, you, you look in the media and you see all kinds of headlines, black musician converts 200 Klansmen or whatever. No, I did not convert even one. Yes, I was the impetus, or I am the impetus, for over 200 people leaving the KKK. But I did not seek to convert them. They converted themselves. All I did was provide information for them to think about, provide food for thought. And then I would nurture that. I planted the seed, I nurtured the seed, and it bloomed. If you spend five minutes with your worst enemy, you will find that you have something in common. You spend 10 minutes, you'll find even more. 
And if you nurture those commonalities, you are forging a relationship. If you nurture those, you know, that relationship, you are forging a friendship. And as you do that, the things that you have in contrast, such as skin color or whether the person went to a mosque, a church, a temple, or a synagogue, begin to matter less and less. So, you know, they make that, that self-conversion. Yes, I'm, I'm taking that in and realizing that's quite a journey for, for them to be on, too, as individuals, and you seem to approach it with quite a bit of compassion and patience. Yes, you know, you know we, all, we all are on a journey. And, you know, I, I learn something each time. I never thought I would be doing this. Uh, all I was doing initially was gathering information for a book that I wanted to write, which I did. And I want to go around the country, up north, down south, midwest and west, and interview clan leaders and clan members and get the answer to my question that had plagued me since age 10. How can you hate me when you don't even know me? And as a kid, you know, we all hear the cliche, a leopard does not change its spots. A tiger does not change its stripes. So why would I think that a Klansman would change his or her robes? You know, um, they are what they are. They're not going to change. That was my, my, uh, my attitude, and I wasn't seeking to change them. I was just seeking to find out why they believed in this. But when the first one changed, I, I was like, oh, my goodness, you know, you know, what happened here? And then it happened again and again and again. You know, with different ones. I thought, you know, I'm on to something here. Let me keep doing this. And that's why I've been on this journey. In your years of doing this, how has this experience shaped you into who you are today? I think it has given me a lot more hope uh, for humanity and a greater sense of urgency to conduct more seminars, workshops, or whatever on how to communicate with people. Because here in this country, the United States, we spend way too much time talking about the other person, talking at the other person, or talking past the other person. What I have been successful at is is talking with the other person, which seems to be a lost art. People are so hung up on their own beliefs, they are afraid to listen to somebody else's. Is it a fear that somebody else is going to change their mind? Or is it, you know, you, you don't want to waste your time listening to something that you don't believe in? But if you do spend that amount of time, you will learn something. And you will also teach something to someone else. And this is what we need to do. You know, communication is key. Because people did not learn this ideology. I'm sorry, they did learn it. They were not born with it. And how did they learn it? They learned it through dialogue. People telling them, whites are bad, blacks are bad, Jews are bad, Muslims are bad, uh, gays are bad, whatever. You learn that through dialogue. So therefore, if you learn it through dialogue, guess what? You can unlearn it through dialogue. And dialogue is the key, and we must know how to communicate and how to do it in such a way that we're not in a constant debate, but more so in a conversation. Yes, you know, you, you, you will debate things in the conversation, but let it be a conversation, not so much a debate. Because, you know, when you say the word debate, people you know, get their walls up and, and all that kind of thing. And just feel free to express yourself. Say, look, I'm not here to attack you. I may not agree with, with what you believe, 
but I do want to understand why you think I should believe the way you do. And I'm, I'm willing to sit here and listen. And when you do things like that, people's walls come down because they are so used to being yelled at and screamed at and, and being put down for their beliefs. And then when you listen to them, chances are they will reciprocate and listen to you. So you make sure you know, that you have all your facts together so that you can give your platform in an intelligent and influential manner. Because at the end of the day, you each have to think about what, what, uh, what the other person said. I did not get all these robes and hoods uh, that I have in my collection by yelling and screaming at people and, and beating them over the head with, with some information. It came as a result of conversation and them thinking on their own and coming to the conclusion, you know what, I need to get out of this. So before we close, Daryl, is there anything that you wanted to chat about that we didn't quite get to in our conversation? Well, music. Oh, yeah. You know, that that's how I make my livelihood. And I'm a band leader. I have my own band. And my job on stage is to bring harmony between the different voices on stage, whether it's the singing voice, the voice of the uh, saxophone, the drums, the piano, the guitar, the bass, to, to blend each of those instruments in harmony. The only time I want a dissonance is when I call for it intentionally to create some kind of uh, shock value or mood you know, within the song. Uh, otherwise, if the dissonance just happens to appear out of nowhere, it's because I made a mistake or somebody went out of tune or something like that. So it should be a controlled dissonance. Otherwise, you want to establish harmony on the stage. That's what people come to hear. They want to be soothed you know, with these beautiful harmonies. Well, when I step off the stage, I still carry that role in my society. I, I want to create harmony in my society as I navigate through it. I don't want to see people at each other's throats and things like that. I want to see people blending together, you know, cohesively and respecting one another. And I think, you know, music is something, you know, that does that. And unfortunately, in the school systems here in our country, whenever the economy tanks, the first, things, first thing they do is they cut the arts in schools. You know, they keep the academics and sports, but they cut the arts. Music is a necessity. It allows people to be creative. It teaches them how to work together, how to blend together with each other. Music brings people together from all walks of life. For example, let's say uh, I'm in the mood to, to go out and hear some music and do some dancing. So I go to some bar or wherever. Uh, it could be a DJ playing the songs or it could be a live band. Either way, I'm there. A song comes on that I like. The, dan the dance floor is full and I want to dance. So what am I going to do? I'm going to look around the room, and I see you sitting at the bar by yourself, and, and you're tapping your hand on the bar to the beat of the music. I don't know you, but obviously you like the song. So I'm going to walk over to you and say, hey, you know, would you like to dance? And you say, yeah, sure. And you hop off the bar stool, and you, now you don't know me either. And we walk out onto the dance floor, and we're dancing together. If it's a slow song, I have my arms around you. You have your arms around me, and you don't even know me. If it's a fast song, you know, then we are apart shaking around or whatever. At the end of the song, I escort you back to your seat. And I say, hey, you know, my name is Daryl. And you say, my name is Lisa. And I say, so Lisa, you know, what do you do? And you tell me that you are the vice president for Microsoft. Well, my goodness, you know, you are making a quarter million dollars a year or something. 
and you say to me, so Daryl, what do you do? And I tell you that I'm a, I'm a busboy in some, you know, chain restaurant. <laughs> well, what am I making? I'm making like, you know, nine or $10,000 a year. Where would two people at opposite ends of the spectrum come that close together? Music brought us together, and we didn't even know each other. I like that story, too, because it, it also highlights that idea of, of how we can be so accepting of people we don't even know. We can be Absolutely. equally as accepting and willing to build that bridge. I cannot tell you how many weddings, you know, like I said, I, I've, been, I've been playing since I graduated college, and I graduated university with my degree in music in 1980. I cannot tell you how many weddings I, I've played where somebody calls me and says, hey, you know, uh, we'd like you to play our wedding because we met at one of your gigs. On all sides, your career is about bringing people together. And uh, disclosure and full transparency, I've also played some divorce parties. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you so much for, for speaking with me today. That was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Take care. A big thanks to Daryl Davis for sharing his time with us. Don't miss your chance to hear more about Daryl's story and ask your own questions. He'll be here in Edmonton at the Shift Lab Speaker Series on October 17th at 7 p.m. For more details and to get your tickets, head on over to edmontonshiftlab.ca and we'll be sure to have the link in our show notes. That brings us to the end of our show. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please be sure to share this episode with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. Leaving a review is a really big help. We always appreciate your feedback. Thanks for hanging out with us. We've been your hosts, Andrew Paul. And Elizabeth Blonkink. Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.